Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is Amy Schumer. Amy is, of course, the creator and star of the hit sketch show Inside Amy Schumer. She also wrote and starred in the hit rom-com Trainwreck. She's been nominated for Emmys, Grammys, Golden Globes, a Tony. She won a Peabody for Inside Amy Schumer. Her newest project is a TV comedy called Life and Beth. She wrote, directed, created, and stars in the show. Life and Beth is intense, probing, and unpredictable. Schumer plays the title character, Beth. That's also Amy's middle name. When the show begins, Beth is living in Manhattan with a great job. She lives with her very handsome boyfriend, who also has a great job. And when the episode ends, an inciting event upends her life. It causes her to re-examine who she is, where she came from, and why she is the person she is today. I want to give you a quick heads up before we get into my conversation with Amy. Three heads up, really. First, uh, there are some references to sexual assault in this conversation. No graphic descriptions, just a few mentions. Second, Amy Schumer just hosted the Academy Awards, but we taped this the Wednesday before the Oscars, which means that we didn't talk about the onstage incident between Will Smith and Chris Rock or any of the other things that happened at the ceremony. Uh, We do talk a little bit about Chris Rock, but only in reference to his work as a past Oscars host. And lastly, there's a point in the first 10 minutes or so of this interview where things get a little bumpy. It is not the whole conversation, but uh, this first part of the interview gives you some important context for everything else. So we left it all in pretty much unedited. So uh, you'll hear what I mean soon enough. It's fine. Don't, Don't worry too much. Anyway. Let's kick things off with a clip from Life and Beth. Like I said, it's an intense show, a serious show, but also very funny. In this scene, Beth is out shopping with her mom. The two of them have a pretty complicated relationship. Beth doesn't totally understand why her mom does what she does. Beth's mom doesn't really understand why her daughter didn't amount to more than a wine salesperson. The vibe between them is is tense. And while they're in the middle of browsing for clothes and kibitzing a little, an employee stops by to offer them champagne. No, thanks. No, no, thanks. No, I don't drink. I never have. I have low blood sugar. But my daughter drinks a lot. (laughs) But apparently not today. (laughs) Um, That's a lot of information to give a stranger. Yeah, well, it's fine. She sells wine for a living. Oh, dream job. What kind of wine? Oh, mostly reds. But it's... I work for a company called Kerrig Cellars. It's a wine distributor. Kerrig, I thought that was coffee. That's what I always say. Don't I always say that? That's so funny. It's not funny. So funny. It's really not. It's um, yeah. It's spelled differently, but it sounds the same, right? But it is different. Amy Schumer, first of all, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you. It's an honor to be on Bullseye. That's uh, not the case. Wow. But I'm glad that you've been led to believe that. Okay, then my publicist lied to me. <laughs> um, to what extent did you bring your mother into the process of making a really intense personal television show that involves a mother character that may share qualities with her? I brought her into the process in that she knew I was writing it, 
And then she read all the scripts and then she watched all the episodes. And along the way, I asked her if there was anything that I wanted, if she, if she wanted me to take anything out. And then when, when we watched it together, which was really meaningful and, and actually really fun. And a couple of times she just said, you, <laughs> but about, not about any like big dramatic things. Like, you know, Laura's character says like, I don't need any sweetener. I have my own stevia. And like, that is, you know, that's such a her thing. So some of the direct things from her and talking about going to Peru and, you know, and so she just like a playful F you. So did you like go through the whole thing when you watched it with her? Did you do it like one a week for, you know what, what do I you mean? mean? We watched it all well, in like, one did you just like Did you just like march her into a living room and sit down with her and be like, okay, we're going to check in every half hour at the end of each episode and uh, then we're going to have dinner? Or was it No, was it I think it's we, a lot of- it's five hours and we, I'm sure we ate in there. But all in one go. Yeah. It's a very bingeable show. <laughs> She's like, I'm 73. I've forgiven myself. And she knows that I've forgiven her. And she's like, this is your story. This is your life. And she's totally supportive. Did you expect that fully? Or were you trepidatious? I wasn't sure. I was just open to, I didn't want to hurt her. And I was down to change anything all along, you know, writing it and anything. And, and she was just like, no, go. I feel like I'm, I feel like that lets you down a little bit. No, I mean, I'm thinking <laughs> I, my mom got on Twitter maybe a year ago. Oh, I'm sorry. And, um, I love my, my mother's really cool. She sounds great. She's on Twitter. She's on Twitter. She has a new dog. Huge. But I got a couple of like stern corrective texts, like correct the record texts about my childhood. Oh, yeah. About, yeah, about my childhood and like things that happened. And I was like, okay, boy. <laughs> she does listen to this show sometimes too. So this may be like, it's nice to know that she cares. Well, if she had any complaints before, just have her watch my show and she'll definitely feel like <laughs> she's getting an easy. <laughs> An easy ride. Um, yeah, my mom had corrective things. Like when I, I wrote my book and I wrote about some of our family, you know, trauma and and she'd be like, Hebrew school was on Sunday. You know, like she just would correct like any like sort of factual things. Yeah. Was she someone that you could see either maybe when you were like an adolescent and, and becoming self-aware or maybe just when you were a young adult that you could see was trying to be self-aware and, and figure things out and be better about things. Was my, like, did I witness my mom trying to? Yeah. Like, did you see her actively engaging with her own flaws and faults and challenges? I really, I don't remember, like as a teen, I don't know. I only remember sort of my teenage version of her, which is why on the show, a lot of the footage, some of it's like distorted and, you know, cause it's just memories, but she wasn't doing any like sort of, um, Tony Robbins or I would just assume she was just trying to like sort of survive because she did have three children and, and you know, no financial support. Yeah. When you were younger, 
Te- when I was Be- like a teenager. When you were a teenager and a uh-huh. and a very young adult, you know what I mean? And yeah. before before 25. Let's gotcha. Say. Gotcha. Did you feel like the relative precariousness of your family's situation meant that you had to be more responsible with a capital R? Or did you feel like it meant that you could just do stuff because both. I took advantage of the situation and, you know, if she was, my mom was dating, I would have a party. And also I was kind of the family spark plug and would try to keep things feeling positive and upbeat and keep everybody laughing, you know, and, and held my, especially my sister close, you know, to create the illusion that everything was actually fine. And I just have to ask, is this going to all be about my traumatic childhood just so I can mentally prepare? Did they, did your publicist not mention this is NPR? <laughs> they said it was a career focused. Um, okay. They said it was it's, a career focused podcast about like so, your, this whole span of your career. And I, I'm, I'm down to, to talk about like my childhood or whatever, but I just wanted to know if that's, what this whole experience is is likely to be not a, it's won't at all be the entire thing i'm not a hundred percent how sincere you are right now but it certainly won't be the entire thing okay. um, i really am just reading this in the context of the new show which is very much about that <laughs> yeah no i know i know um uh the show is uh about it's very personal um, I just didn't know I was, you know, going to talk about, um, you know, talk about my family and everything for, for, um, you know, the, the majority, I guess. It won't be the whole thing. It's, but it will definitely be part of everything. It's a, br- it's a broad conversation, I would say. Yeah. It feels broad. Does that make sense? We'll see, Jesse. Okay, Amy. I'm doing my best here, I promise. Are you? Have you talked to my mom? Yeah. Is that how- <laughs> she said I could do anything with my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, okay, let me, let me start over here. Um, how secure did you feel um, writing a show so personal? at this point in your life? Pretty secure till right now. <laughs> Am I making you feel insecure? Well, about I don't it? know. It I just, don't it, there is it. something, you know, there's something about doing press, which is, which I've really enjoyed, um, for this show. But I think when someone, you know, it, it is like a, it is in some ways the, the truth is a stranger who you're just meeting now wanting to unpack you know, the nuances of your early childhood trauma. And, you know, even though I put it out there and I made a show, I I'm not necessarily down and don't like, it's not going to be a joyful experience for me to like go through all that with you. And I don't really feel like, you know, just because I made a show about it, that, you know, that, that means that people are entitled to, or I'm, um, that I have to, you know, feel comfortable and feel like going through all of it again. Uh, 
Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it makes sense for you as an interviewer to want to, I mean, these are like the burning, interesting questions. And I guess it really is just about me not really feeling like talking about it for, you know, talking about all the nuances and, you know, and, and, you know, this is at the end of doing a lot of press. So I've said like a thousand times, like, you know, it's 50, 50 real and not. And so maybe today I'm just a little raw and vulnerable and, and, and don't really want to talk on NPR about, about that right now. That's totally fine. Sincerely. Okay. But I think a lot of your career has been, especially as a stand-up, has been about like figuring out how to show yourself to an audience, right? When you first went up on stage, did you have like a goal or an idea of who you wanted to be or were you flying blind? I think I was just trying to like, I think when anyone starts, they're just doing like an impersonation of what you think a comic is, but it was definitely a character. It like morphed into a character. I've lived in New York my whole life, but people, they always just like assume I'm from the Midwest. I've got that look about me, right? It looks like I've milked something recently, right? I know. On the subway, I'm telling you all the time, people are always like, are you lost? I'm like, no. They're like, are you Amish? I'm like, no. I just like wearing this bonnet. Like, why are you? It's my fault I look dope in a bonnet? I don't think so. Yeah, it's like, I don't have a goal of like, I want the exact same person when I'm on and off stage to, you know, because it's pretty boring. <laughs> like, I just kind of want to sit. But I, yeah, I didn't really have any goal. I, you know, I, I'll have goals like right in front of me, but I didn't have any idea of, of like an arc of a career or what it could lead to. I knew I wanted to perform and like that that was going to be my thing. And like, I didn't have a backup to being a performer, but yeah, but I didn't have any like big picture ideas. Did you find things about yourself that played on stage uh, or things that you could do that played on stage right away? The things that people responded to, like, you know, when you're just trying to do anything you can to get stage time and it is so much, so many open mics and the audience is just, you know, what, mostly guys just looking at you and everybody, you know, you might have a couple of friends in, in comedy when you start out, but it does feel kind of cutthroat in New York. Definitely felt like that. And just kind of like, okay, you have your five minutes, you waited three hours or whatever to get on stage. You paid whatever you to pay something to get on stage for open mics. And, uh, most of them anyway. Um, I don't know. It's changed. It's been a while. It could be, it's probably Bitcoin now. Um, <laughs> very often at least you have to like, you, you only get stage time if you've gotten people to come to the show. That's one way there's, that's called a bringer, you know, or you have to, you know, have eight people there or something, or you bark, you go on the street, you give out flyers, you want to see a show you have to do that for hours or they do, or yeah, an open mic where you pay and whatever. And then 
you know, no, the, they're, they're just other comedians and they're not really an open captive audience. They're comedians like you and have probably had a lot of trauma that's led them to want to be a comedian and you have to surprise them into laughing. So me setting up and then delivering like a, a punchline that's very different from what they thought was coming was so like the misdirect, I guess, was my, was like the only way I could get people to laugh. Um, yeah. And so it was a lot of misdirection, which I still, you know, I bet half my stuff is misdirection or more. <laughs> it gives you some juice to really pull the rug out from under people, especially in a situation where you're doing five minutes or you're doing seven minutes and it's a 14 person show. Everybody in the audience is, you know, half the people in the audience are thinking about the set that they're going to do. Yeah. A third of the people in the audience are thinking about the set they just did. <laughs> right. Or they just have their own going on, you know, like, and comedians who take things so highly personally, as if you can tell. And, uh, and then, you know, like, I remember one time I was like really worried that, uh, this bartender at the punchline in San Francisco was like, God, she's giving me such an attitude all weekend. Like, did I say something in my act? And they were like, oh no, she, she had an abortion this week. And I was like, okay, it's not all about me. <laughs> <laughs> They're usually so nice at the punchline. I know. I don't know. It must've just been that abortion. And I, I imagine that is particularly true when, you know, the first distinctive thing about you as a comic on a lineup in 2005 in New York City is it's a 13 person lineup and there's two women on it, right? So you have to address that. You have to like punch through that right at the top if you only got five minutes, you know? Yeah. I, I, I've found that, you know, the audience, and, and I know this from myself being an audience member, they want to know where to store you. What are you? Okay. You're like the single slutty girl or you're like the uptight mom or actually those are the only two types of women in the world, but <laughs> no, but it's like, yeah, I had like such a gilded path, you know, to this career, which still has taken an, an extreme amount of hustle. <laughs> but the sort of aspect, the, the being a woman part of it, I just feel like that the stigma of that and the obstacles are just like across the board. I mean, what we found with the Me Too movement, which wasn't shocking, was that like everybody was being oppressed and abused, you know. And from a really young age, I just remember it being very made very clear to me that the boys were like the funny smart ones and the girls were supposed to just try and look pretty and like wait for the boys to sort of call on you if they wanted to. And there are exceptions to that, but that was like pretty much the culture I, I grew up in and, and it definitely continued in stand up and, and it continues now. There's still many people in, in the comedy world that I interact with, you know, sometimes and they just feel like very confused why, you're even there, but also a ton of really great, you know, men who are clearly feminists and see women as equals, especially female comics. More to come with Amy Schumer. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with comedian Amy Schumer. Amy created and starred in the award-winning sketch TV show Inside Amy Schumer, she also starred in the movies Trainwreck and I Feel Pretty. Along with hosting the Oscars, which she just did, 
Amy created and starred in the brand new Hulu show Life and Beth. It's a semi-autobiographical comedy about a woman from Long Island who re-examines her life after a sudden traumatic event. Let's get back into our conversation. I mean, one of the things that I see as an Angelino about, you know, maybe the New York comedy scene a little less now, but maybe like in the late 90s through the mid to late aughts, is that this kind of like toughness was really highly prized. Like the tone of New York comedy for a long time was, look, we're all doing these, everybody's doing 15 minutes at four clubs a night and we're all kind of punching through and kicking everybody's butt on stage and uh, seeing who can make the most exciting joke. And that's a like you really got to come hard to the hoop if you're going to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I learned how to surf on a board that was 5'10 so that I could surf on anything. And I think of New York stand-up as the same way. It's like you, if you can make it there, Jesse, no, but it's, it is, that is the vibe. And a lot of, and a lot of comics I know it kind of makes them mad. Like, they're like, look, I don't want to get on stage and kill every time. And you're like, okay, well, you know, when you're working out a set and it's more laid back, you know, but if it's like a Saturday night, there's an expectation. It's like, yeah, that's what New York crowds expect. And, and that's what the bookers expect. And it is, it's, that is the vibe. Not that there aren't absolute killers in LA, but I think you know, I think there is like a cultural difference with the vibes at the clubs. How do you think that affected what you were doing? Well, I didn't know what was going on in LA. I still really don't. Like, you know, when I'm in town, I really enjoy getting up at all the clubs around here. And especially like Largo is so warm and fun. But uh, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't really like thinking about what was going on in LA. Yeah. But I, you know, when I, I, when I did last comic standing, I had gotten very used to like pretty supportive LA audiences while I was on that show. Some of them paid. And then when I came back to New York, I just, people just were like staring at me. Like I was wasting their time. (laughs) I was like, okay. But the same, you know, you can learn how to kill in New York, but it might not work in middle America. And I think you really need to try your stuff out everywhere for it to be, you know, really tested and ready for a special or something. I think also like there's a certain kind of, you know, a lot of New York comics are throwing really hard punches. You know what I mean? Cause you, cause you got to clear some space for yourself when you hit the stage. That's true in any standup, but like, yeah, the like make me remember, make them remember you vibe. Yeah. And yeah. And that also kind of comes with a like, you know, well, I did it if it works, right? Like if you, if the audience is laughing, then it worked. And there's a kind of like, there's both an, I accomplished that thing. And there is, and there's like a little bit of defensiveness to it, at least as I hear it sometimes. Uh, I haven't heard it sure. from you, to be clear. <laughs> no, definitely. I think a lot of stand-ups get in it, whether they know it or not, because they need to be in control. And I think, like, weirdly, they feel safer on stage because that's where they're – and I say that them, but I'm, I know I'm included in that, you know, to some degree. And 
but the thing is, it's like, then once you, your foot's in the door, like, you know, in the position I'm in now, I feel like I can explore more with being more myself. And it, I'm not trying to say the thing that's going to shock people anymore, unless I think it's like either really funny or, um, or silly, or I'm like trying to make a statement. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that I, when I saw your stand up at the time, I saw you figuring out. And also one of the things that really connected with people is like at the base of it was this like dumb lady character. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't think of an appropriate for NPR way to put another quality of this, this character that you are presenting, but maybe th- I, this is not a word I would use in my regular life, <laughs> but, but when you are presenting self-consciously easy, actually i'm going on tour and i call i'm calling it tour so (laughs) you're doing this character but you're Mm -hmm. also doing it like you're interspersing it with a voice that is a little more like human person's voice yeah but you are still figuring out how to blend those two things together yeah and that's not that wildly different from like having to combine like who am i if i'm going to be in the tabloids like who is my public persona compared to me as a human being I feel like you just have such little control over, over that, like it's like tabloid sort of stuff and whatever, but I wasn't, you know, it's like, okay, we're all curating ourselves on Instagram and whatever. And, and that was all happening. It's like, you know, I was part of the generation that, as I think you were, that witnessed Britney Spears and Paris Hilton, like just get devoured and in like this really savage, cruel way. And so the idea of becoming a famous person was not appealing at all and, and was really scary. And so I think in order to feel like I, I had some control over it was like just to go hard the other way. Like I'm not going to try to always like look, you know, not that I'm like famous for for my looks, but I, I'm not going to like I'm I'm going to still wear you know, like how I live my life, which is like obviously sweatpants all day and like just doing what I normally do, like just trying to just pretend like it's not there. I guess I don't even know if that's what you're asking, but that's just where my where my mind went. And in terms of like, yeah, like I wasn't really aware of like the bigger picture of of sort of curating my identity as a famous person at the time. But I mean, I was aware of the huge disparity between who I am in real life and who I was on stage. Like I, I've never been a huge, no, I can't say I've never been a huge drinker. I don't remember years of college, but since then, you know, I'm not a big drinker. Um, I, I do enjoy drinking, like having a couple of drinks with friends or whatever, but I've never, and, and not since college have I like, really slept around except for this one little stint actually right before I met my husband. But no, so like the sort of, the sort of like slutty, ugly, drunk thing was a part of me and kind of more who I was in college. And, you know, like my, my girls from Long Island who I'm still really close with, like, you know, it's kind of like, okay, if you boil it down at like your essence, like that is in there and that is a part of me. But it was def- it's definitely not who I am I, I, on, you know, who I am off stage. Like I, you, you know, you can't 
party like that or whatever. I couldn't, I, I suffer from chronic pain. So, so it's like, I have to really take care of myself in order to just do the bare minimum. One of the things that I personally have struggled with in my own marginal career as a public figure is understanding like how specific a role my work plays in people's lives, how narrow a role and how narrow their idea of me is. Mm -hmm. And that, that like, I can't make them know me. <laughs> you know what no, I mean? No, it's, it's not even about you. It's not personal. Like somebody's feelings about you are like actually not even any of our business. My instinct is always to explain myself to someone. And I'm like, no, they're just like, it's like the way to do it is to be Guy Fieri and your hairstyle. You just, somebody sees you and they understand two things about you. That's not the totality of you, but That's they so like funny. see you understand two things and those things are useful to them in some just way. Just be Guy Fieri is like the most delightful thing I've heard in a really long time. <laughs> that makes me... Well, you could, you could say the same thing about Anthony Bourdain. You know what I mean? Like uh, no, the late Anthony Bourdain. Be, just be Guy Fieri is such a funny line. I can't get over it. It made me cry laugh. But understand what they I mean, right? They want one like, thing. Like you mean they want you to be one thing? Yeah, or one thing with a little modifier, like a distinctive version of one thing. And it's like, they, how long are people thinking about us? You know what I mean? Even like, yeah. like you become a thought in their head, and whether it's based on truth or you know, maybe they, I, I maybe said something to you during this interview where, um, like I was joking, and they took it that I wasn't joking, or you know, it's like whatever, or someone like Pete Davidson, who's like, you know, everybody like is buzzing about. It's like just fun gossip, whatever you really don't spend that much time on it. And then you're back thinking about yourself again. So I just, yeah, I don't know. I'm not worried about, but you know what I do want to say is like the only thing that has, that has upset me about my experience as becoming a famous person, whatever is the blatant lie that I've ever stolen a joke. And there's viral videos out there where they made compilations making it look like I have. Never in my life would I do that. And I actually just had the opportunity and I was <laughs> taking a lie detector test. And I asked them if they would have, please ask me about that. Because as a comic, it's just such an ugly accusation. And if, if you're someone who's, who does steal jokes, like you're not allowed, to, you're not going to be friends with comics. You're not going to... In my entire, that's just like handing trolls, whatever. But I, you know what? I think I think the trolls are getting tired. The ones who were like up in, in arms and like organizing on Reddit when I was, you know, to to get me voted down on Rotten Tomatoes or whatever. I think they they might be tired. But that was that was like the worst part of my, you know, whatever journey of being a, a famous person. And and that is like just was to a total lie and is totally out of my control. You know. It's funny what hits, because like obviously you went through it with Amy Schumer is racist, Amy Schumer isn't a real feminist. Yeah. Um, you know. <laughs> Amy Schumer's fat. I'm like, I don't care, but I never stole a joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean the thing is like I've just like educated myself and and uh the, those criticisms of of not understanding what it, it means to really be an actively good feminist and an ally. I didn't have those tools then. And so the things they were accusing me of, like there was definitely truth to them, not 
you know, in the way that people go, well, I'm not racist. You know, I, I love black people. I love all people of color and all people. And I see them all equally. It's like, and that, that was true then that's true now, but you know, my eyes weren't open to how much we live in an actual caste system. Yeah. They just weren't like a lot of ours weren't. And so, and I remember America Ferrara was the one who, you know, told me, I'm like, well, can't, I, can't we just be working to help all women? And like, no, we, this is true. This is a triage. We need to help women of color first because they've had it the worst for the longest. And I, that had to be explained to me. And so, you know, I've spent the, the last whatever, five or six years, like really trying to be proactive in educating myself and evolve. So yeah, I'm like, totally down to apologize for my jokes I've said before and for the decisions I've made that weren't good and not as a PR statement, you know, like that's how I really feel. And just as I'm, I'm, I'm forgiving of other people, um, who like aren't there yet and who haven't had their eyes open to it. Yeah. I mean, I very sincerely believe you, like I would not have invited you on this show if I didn't believe that to be the case. Like I see. Oh, it thank your- you. Yeah, in your work and in, you know, the way you talk about your work in, in public, both. You know, having followed many someone is stealing someone's jokes controversies over the years. Yeah. Like, there's nothing that there's less tolerance for in stand-up comedy, I would I know. say. I mean, literally, like the people who have <laughs> Like raped. white people saying the N-word or, yeah, like th- those things are more yeah. tolerated. Yeah. Oh, you you statutory rape. You masturbated in front of people. You coerced somebody. No, all forgiven. Cosby, but, forgiven. <laughs> but parallel thought is a real thing that really exists. Like two people can look at the same situation and see yeah. something similar that's funny about it. it. Yeah. But it's also not just that. It's like the things are like, okay, one of the things was um, like about an old joke and that somebody said in a special and we did a, a line in one of the sketches about it that one of the writers pitched, like not even me, you know, it's like, yeah. or Colin Quinn pitched a joke for train wreck, you know, that they were like, Oh, well, Daniel Tosh, like, it, it's like, so, and you could edit anybody's stuff and make it look like that. But so I just, I just hate that that's out there in the ether. Yeah. I was pretty shocked when I, somebody mentioned that to me, I hadn't heard about it. And I was like, well, one of these is like a sketch premise from her show. She didn't write every sketch in her entire you can't write an entire television sketch show by yourself. No, it's like, yeah, it's, it's wild. I'm so, I've always been like so careful and done my best. And then other stuff, they'll show like a clip of, you know, Ali Wong special and a special I did before her, you know, it's like, yeah. and I would, I, you know, I understand this. I would, I would call and go, excuse me. Did you steal the, It's like, it's so dumb. Do you feel like going through like the gigantic life upheavals roughly in parallel of falling in love, getting married, turning 40, having a kid, dealing with a serious chronic illness and a global pandemic? (laughs) Don't forget about the war, the don't say gay bill in Florida. The climate yeah. and, um, there's other you know, stuff. law enforcement killing black people too in a, 
unbelievable rate at an unbelievable rate. Yeah. Do you think that all of those things made you want to work more or less? Well, I, you know, before when I was pregnant, I kind of like thought of when you have a baby is like, and because my pregnancy was so bad, it was just like, am I dying? <laughs> I always have this uh, urgency to create stuff, whatever it, it is. I really like to hustle and work and do a, a ton of stuff and then like kind of chill a little bit. And so I'm hoping to chill a little bit pretty soon in like a month. Um, so it made me, it made me really appreciate everything. Like, you know, everybody else and you don't know what's going to happen. Like I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't have wanted to host the Oscars if there weren't a pandemic, like, <laughs> you know, it's like so risky and such a target on your back, but such a bullseye, but, uh, hello, but yeah, I think it made me like, get, I was like in survival mode, like, okay, how can we still make money and hustle? And like, you know, and now I'm like, I, I would, I would love to just like get to just hang out with the fam and go for walks and, you know. We've got even more to get into with Amy Schumer. After a quick break, we'll talk about why she said yes to maybe the most stressful job in the business, hosting the Oscars. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, I'm Biz, host of One Bad Mother. Whether you're a parent or just know kids exist in the world, join us each week as we honestly share what it's like to be a parent. I signed my stepson up for a camp that is actually in another state. I feel really stupid, and I don't think we're going to get the money back. And then he found out that the car manual is a book about cars, so now he's reading our car manual. We So join us each week as we judge less, laugh more, and remind you that you are doing a great job. Download One Bad Mother on MaximumFun.org, and yes, there will be swears. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Amy Schumer. She created and stars in the new TV show, Life and Beth. Somehow I feel like agreeing to co-host the Oscars is like a bigger self-exposure than writing and starring in a television <laughs> show that's significantly like personal and based on your life. Like I know. It's such a like skydive into just like a pile of you must know people. I mean, did you ask Chris Rock what it was like for him? Because he was he was really funny and he was great. I don't know if it was a net positive experience for him. Yeah, he had fun. He definitely wasn't okay. didn't feel like doing it again. Yeah, we're having dinner tonight. Actually, he's he's uh, but you know, I don't know. Everybody I talked to, like nobody was like, "Don't do it," and you know. It's, and a lot of people don't want to do it now because, but, you know, Wanda and Regina and I have, um, we've never raped anyone that we're afraid <laughs> is going to come out. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of like a psychotic thing to want to do. And I really just want to do it because I want to do it. Like I want to have the experience. It's been so fun to work on it. And I want to perform. Like I want to go up and be funny. And, you know, I always 
it, it annoys me every year after the Oscars ends, then all the, there's like these pundits who have like never even told a joke at a dinner and they're deliberating on whether or not you were funny or if you were took it too far or whatever, you know? So yeah, it's like hope public opinion, but you just have no control. So it's just, it's a skydive. One of the things that makes me worried when I watch the Oscars is I'm like, I don't know that these people or even people watching at home want this to be funny. Like I'm not a hundred percent on that's like, cause I my, like a formative experience in my childhood, I that's think was watching point. David Letterman host the Oscars. Yeah. To me, it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen on television. Right. And then <laughs> all anyone could talk about was how bad it was. Right. And I was like, what? I That was the best thing I've ever seen. Right. <laughs> no, I know. I, I felt like that when Jon Stewart hosted, I was like, I just thought he killed and that it was so funny. And then public opinion, I remember, was just like tearing him down. But, you know, the people that really matter to you, that like the people who are smart, that you care about their opinion, they'll see what really happens. Uh, and you got to just depend on that. So, you know, whatever. I mean, I want public opinion to be nice to me. Like, it doesn't feel good to have the whole world have like hating you on the internet. But, but it also doesn't really matter. And what really matters is that I'm going to have this amazing memory and, you know, get to do these jokes I've worked hard on and, and be funny. And, and it, and I think it's cool. And I think it's cool to be doing it with Wanda and Regina. Well, this is going to air after watch. I'm like actually fully canceled. (laughs) Amy's last interview before she was canceled on NPR. (laughs) Yeah. Wanda Sykes has your back. She's got powerful mom vibes. I was, I was really, when she was on the show, I was so, I was so thrilled at how, how fully she delivered on what my hopes of what kind of lady she would be like were. A total hero. She's a total hero. And she, she's just one of my favorite people. Very lucky to be friends with her. When the three of you got this job, like, did you have a, a cloister and say, hey, what do we want this to be? That would have been a good idea. <laughs> no, I think it was like really feeling each other out. You know, it's like everybody's bringing all their emotional baggage and their baggage of what this business, how they've treated them. And and a lot of us, especially women, it's like you have to start your career over every day. It doesn't matter what you've done. Like I know that like Tina Fey and her like even final season of 30 Rock, like the network would give notes and, you know, it's like, They'd want like a season map out and just, just, you know, things like that. It's like, you know, some network, some streaming service is like, okay, we want to do something with you, but then we're going to make or manage every step of the way. You know, it's like, you really have to start fresh every day (laughs) with like trying to prove yourself. So I think we all came in kind of a little bit ready to be disrespected and have just really met, met each other with like open arms and have been enjoying this actual collaboration, even from shooting the promos. Yeah. It's like such a team thing. And like, I just feel like we've all been very down to share. And like, if I write a joke, I'm like, Oh, do you want that? Or, you know, any overflow, like we're, we're all very giving and yeah. 
Well, I think we should probably close the interview with a clip of you killing on the Oscars the other day. <gasps> right? Yes. Let's go to that clip where I wasn't canceled. <laughs> well, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time, Amy. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for holding my hand through my like mini meltdown. The last thing I want to do is have anybody come on this show and feel about it. So I'm glad that you said something and I'm glad we I'm uh, glad we talked it out. Somewhere good. It was a pleasure. Thank you, thank you. Amy Schumer, her new show, Life and Beth, is streaming now on Hulu. As we mentioned, this was taped the Wednesday before Amy hosted the Oscars, so we didn't get to ask her about what happened that night, but as promised, here's Amy doing great from her opening speech at the ceremony. This year, the Academy hired three women to host because it's cheaper than hiring one man. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where my eight-year-old Oscar took my power drill and disassembled the playhouse that was in the backyard. It's now a pile of sticks, and he also made a few swords out of it. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio, Valerie Moffat, and Richard Roby. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation, recorded by the group The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us in all those places. Follow us. We'll share our interviews with you. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.